as the elders met this week, uh, the plan was to speak to you from 1 Samuel, right, this, this coming Sunday, and yet as we, as we met, we felt the need to speak also to the moments that we live in. Friends, it has been a brutal season, just a brutal season. It's been said that 2020 started off like 1974 with an impeachment crisis and then quickly became 1918 with a worldwide pandemic and then turned into 1929 with an economic crash and is now 1968 in the midst of massive social unrest. And yet it's that social, really racial unrest that's pushed something as unprecedented as COVID and has really just wiped that off, right, the front pages of our papers and of our news feeds. It's a racial unrest that is literally tearing our nation apart. So in Minneapolis, as Wes was just praying, there was the horrific death of of George Floyd in police custody. But of course, that only comes on the heels, right, of Ahmaud Aubrey being gunned down in broad Georgia daylight, not to mention the shooting of Brianna Taylor in Louisville, even the recent harassment of an African-American man who was merely birdwatching in New York. Our nation, it seems, has reached a kind of boiling point. And over the past week, cities all across our country have erupted into protests, riots, further violence, the wanton destruction of property. You know, and the elders met, and we talked some about this, and, and with cities burning and with tensions flaring, even with 4,000-plus right, protesting in Fayetteville Square, we were wanting to provide some instruction into how we're to think through these times as Christians and what we should do in the midst of these times as Christians. And so I began drafting comments this week, and I found it difficult, frankly, to say anything briefly, and yet at the same time to say anything meaningfully. That was a hard tension I felt. And as elders, we didn't merely want to check a box, right? Check the box, said something, we're being culturally sensitive. Nor do we want to engage as elders on our own form of sort of virtue signaling. So what started as a five to ten minute video message is now the address you're going to hear this morning. If I can get my iPad to cooperate. One second. So uh, as I deliver this address, just to be clear, my point is not to adjudicate all that's happened, to advocate for particular policy solutions, to side with one cultural movement, or to weigh in on the supposed virtues or vices of critical race theory or intersectionality. The hope is not found, our hope as Christians is not finally found in linking arms with any of the camps that our country seems to be fracturing into. Now, our hope, as we read in Ephesians 2, is in the God who shatters the dividing walls of hostility by calling men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation to bow the knee in repentance and faith and to proclaim Jesus Christ as King of kings, Lord of lords, and the Prince of peace. We're called to walk in the ways that he walked right? Not in the ways of the world. And so our response, really our hope this morning has to be in Jesus alone. But friends, again, what does that look like as Christians 
it's so often right here where we're left scratching our heads. We're, we're left perhaps stumbling over our own feet. And we can feel the events around us, a kind of moral outrage, but we don't know exactly how we're to process through it or, again, what we're to do with it. So let me offer, really highlight, I think, four things we must know and four things we must do. So if you're sort of outline, that's it right there, four things we must know, followed by four things we must do. And I will just say, of course, this is by no means an exhaustive list. I already fear the things I shouldn't say and will say, the things I should say and that I won't say, the things that I will say weekly or poorly or maybe two days from now, I'll reflect on what was said and I'll be like, wow, how did I not say that? Maybe two years from now the same, right? That may well happen. But nonetheless, I hope and pray and we as elders hope and pray that these comments are our kind of guide as we begin the necessary work of sort of pressing forward as we think and work through these times. So again, beginning, four things we must know. Four things we must know. First, we must know God hates injustice. Start right there. First, God hates injustice. Isaiah 61.8, the Lord loves justice and hates injustice. Or Proverbs 6.17, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. Friends, the Bible is riddled with such verses. For the Lord is a God of justice, Isaiah 30.18, which means God necessarily hates racism, hates oppression, hates abuse, hates corruption, and so should we. So should we. For in Genesis 127, the Bible declares that all men and women are made in the image of God. Not some men, or not some men and some women. All men, all women made in the image of God. Pigmentation doesn't factor into that equation. All are equally human, and our identity must be rooted in that ontology, right? Who we are as image bearers. So when one is treated with ethnic prejudice or hatred on account of their skin, recognize that's not just an affront against society. That's not just an affront against humanity. That's an affront against divinity, against God himself, and who he's made us to be. It's declaring that one is less than what God has declared them to be. Every racial injustice rests on the fundamental lie that a person isn't fully human, that they aren't fully made in God's image or aren't deserving of the same rights and privileges that I am. And the Bible confronts those lies asserting unequivocally, right, that we are all image bearers equally, equally. Now, as an aside, I think there is a difference between pursuing what it means to be equal, recognizing that, and equality. So the Bible does declare we are equally image bearers, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, equally image bearers, but it never promises an equality of outcomes, so Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. Right? We're not surprised by that statement. God hates injustice. You shall do no injustice in court. But then the verse goes on, right? which means you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, 
but in righteousness or fairness, you shall judge your neighbor. So interestingly, right there, notice how the Bible warns against a kind of injustice that sinfully would give preference to the rich, and yet also would show a wrong kind of partiality toward the poor, which is why it's good to distinguish between equality of opportunity and to distinguish that from equality of outcome. But later, we'll read, for example, Romans 12, 19. We read, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Notice right there, part of how we demonstrate genuine love is to hate that which is evil. Which means when an unarmed black man jogging in broad daylight is hunted down by two white vigilantes and shot. And when one of those men stares over his bullet-ridden body and utters expletives and racial epithets and nothing happens for three months because of those two men and their ties to law enforcement. Friends, it is right to be angry about that. It is right to be angry. If that does not stir any anger in your own heart, you've got to be asking some hard questions of your heart. What happened to Ahmaud Aubrey? That wasn't just sickening. Friends, that was a lynching. It was evil. We can say so. We should say so. It means when Eric Garner dies in a police hold uttering those chilling words, I can't breathe. And it's not but a few years later that another black man utters that same plea, I can't breathe, desperately calling for his mother while a white officer presses his knee into that man's neck. Friends, that's wrong. It's an injustice. We can say so. We should say so. Nobody should die that way. Friends, God hates injustice, and so should we. He hates all injustice, and so should we. Which means the same righteous anger that so many of us feel about the killing of unborn life should be equally felt about the unjust killing of any life. If we prize some life more than other life, some murders we decry worse than others. Like, friends, what does that just say about our hearts? And yet I think here we've just got to stop. We also have to recognize that the single greatest injustice, friends, the single greatest injustice that, that we witness, that we see happening in our cities, friends, it is in fact the rebellion of your heart against a good and holy God. That injustice right there is the single greatest injustice we must not lose sight of. For whereas ethnic prejudice is contempt for another made in God's image, friends, just recognize sin in general is contempt for God by those who are made in his image. And that sin that takes place every day in the evil recesses of our own heart, when we shake our fist at God and when we demand to have our own way. 
Friends, that sin is exactly why God sent Jesus Christ into this world, to save sinners. He alone, Jesus did, lived a perfectly pure life. He alone died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, for all of those who would see their needs, see the injustice of their own hearts, recognize it's not just a problem with others or out there, it's deeply an embedded, embedded problem in all of our hearts, would recognize that, confess their sin, repent of it, trust in this God. For this Jesus alone rose from the grave, victorious over sin. Recognize the single greatest injustice is not what we experience from one another. It is, in fact, in the midst of the tremendous injustice we've seen, the single greatest injustice is the one we ourselves commit every day against God in our sin. Which is why any true work of reconciliation begins with repenting and believing in Christ. Friend, have you done that? God hates injustice. But a second thing we need to know, racial reconciliation is not just an implication of the cross, it is the work of the cross. Second thing to see, racial reconciliation is not just an implication of the cross, it is the work of the cross. I'm actually taking that statement directly from the Gospel and Race Conference we held here back in October of 18. And friends, we get that right out of Ephesians 2 that Joy read for us earlier in the service, where we see that the work of the cross did what? It created one new man in place of two, so making peace, Ephesians 2.15. So recognize through the cross of Christ, through the cross of Christ, which brings our union with Christ, the sinful inequalities of this fallen world ought to give way to unity as we're created to be one new humanity. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. It's why Christians of all people should care most about racism because it's not something that's merely incidental to the cross. It's essential to the work of the cross and so it should be essential in our own lives and our own convictions. You know, it's why as a church, when we revised our statement of faith, we revised that statement on humanity that we read earlier in the service. We believe God created all humanity in his own image, male and female, as the crowning work of his creation, and thus abhors all forms of racism and ethnic and gender superiority. Friends, we ought to decry racism not only because it lies about who God created us to be, Genesis 1 and 2, but it also lies about who he redeemed us to be, right? Ephesians 2. It lies about both. It's why we never want to fall prey to the deception that racism is somehow vanished in our own society or that racism is somehow vanished in our own heart. For if so, recognize it would not only be the first sin, it would be the only sin truly eradicated this side of heaven. We can finally be victorious over sin and yet not fully free from sin, which is why we have to be vigilant against sin. Third thing we need to see. Christians will be political, but we should avoid being partisan. Third, Christians will be political, We should avoid being partisan. You know, sometimes Christians will say things like, 
the church should never make political statements. You know, we should stay in our lane. It's about proclamation, not about politics and and that kind of thing. And sometimes that's a very well-intentioned statement. For we don't want to confuse, we don't want to confuse following Jesus with taking this particular policy on like recycling or on global warming. Right? We, want to, we don't want to make that confusion. But sometimes when someone says the church should never make political statements, what that really is is it's a cover for avoiding something that's uncomfortable, something that's difficult to talk about, a topic that makes them feel uneasy. Either way, to say that the church should never make political statements is itself a misinformed statement. Now, let me explain what I mean. I mean, and just consider, right? When the apostles and disciples proclaimed, Jesus is Lord, friends, that is a supreme political statement because it means Caesar is not Lord. And that was not lost on the Roman Empire. It's, in fact, the Roman Empire saw that mere statement as a deeply seditious political statement, which is why so many Christians lost their heads. So when we say the murder of unborn life is wrong, that's a sort of a straight line issue that becomes a political statement. When we say that marriage is the monogamous union of one man and like one, one man and one woman for life, like that is making sort of a direct straight line political statement. When we say racism is wrong, that is, in effect, making a political statement. But I want to help you see that's a different thing from being partisan. That's a different thing from being partisan. Partisan referring more to aligning Jesus with a particular political party. And then implying that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you, yourself, have to stand with that party and adopt that party's platform, right? Hook, line, and sinker, the whole bit. So two people recognize they can agree and share the same moral outlook on a biblical issue. They can agree agree on a biblical principle, and yet they may not agree on the best policy solution to see that biblical principle played out. So we can agree that racism and that the racial inequalities that result are wrong. Christians can agree with that. But one Christian may think the department of housing and urban development, right, HUD, they may think that department actually perpetuates that inequality, and so defunding that department is the best option. Whereas another Christian may think, for policy-wise, actually HUD is the best solution, so we shouldn't defund them. We should, in fact, give them more money. Friends, you can, we all can have spirited debates about those issues, even about what does or does not need to happen in our nation's police departments, but recognize whether it's healthcare, whether it's tax policy, or whether it's how we foster racial reconciliation in our nation, Christians will often differ on the means, on the means of accomplishing those moral goods. Friends, that's not only inevitable. I think those differing views within a local church is actually a sign of church health. For recognize, if there are no partisan differences within our church, if there are no partisan differences whatsoever, it must beg the question, are we united around something other than Jesus Christ? 
Are we united around something other than Jesus Christ? Has the gospel, in in fact, taken a backseat to our politics if all we know is partisan unity? You know, this week, both President Trump and Speaker Pelosi held up a Bible. Many of you will know the story, right? Both, actually both, it wasn't just one, both held up a Bible. Both this week were seeking to co-opt Jesus, right? If you're with Jesus, you're with me, you're with my party, you're with our platform. That's what both were doing. Christians of all people, we have to be the last to be held captive, right, to be to be led astray, to fall prey to those kinds of shenanigans, to those kind of political stunts. Right? We have to stay away from those. We will be political. We ought to avoid being partisan. But fourth, fourth, fourth thing we have to sort of know, government can't save you, but it is given to protect you. Government can't save you, but it is given to protect you. You know, there's a good reason, theologically speaking, while many police departments have that tagline, right? To protect and to serve. That's because in Scripture, government is a common grace gift. Common grace means it's a gift given to all of God for the preservation and protection of society. Government is a gift of God in that way. It's what we see again in Romans 13. But it's particularly what we see in Genesis 9. We even see it right there in the covenant that God made with Noah. Government was given there to protect and to preserve life. And when necessary, government will require one's life when necessary. It's where we get the principle of lex talionis, right, that's so ingrained in many of our Western judicial systems. And that, friends, is what makes the unjust killing of men and women at the hands of government authorities. That's what makes it so egregious. That's what makes our hearts cry out. Because the very ones meant to protect and to preserve life are in fact the ones taking that life. It's why our justice meters go off when those who are marginalized, when those who are weak are exploited by those who hold power. Because that's not how God created it to be. Because that's how God, with infinite power, that is not how he behaves. And yet, on the other hand, we know that while, as Christians, that while government can protect us, as Christians, we know government can't save us, though. It can't save us. In Genesis 9, God gave government in order to protect us from one another. But he made a covenant to protect us from him. So Genesis 9, God gave government in order to protect us from one another, but he made a covenant in order to protect us from him. So we've got to know the solution to society's ills are never finally found in government. Our constitution won't save us. Just laws finally can't free us. The best politicians cannot deliver us. God didn't send a political system or a party platform, even police departments. He sent us a person. He sent us Jesus Christ, and it's the new covenant in this Jesus Christ. He is the one, and he alone that saves. And we've got to know that. And we've got to know that because without God, right, without the gospel, society has what? Nowhere else to look. Nowhere else to look other than to government to solve their ills. And what ends up happening is so much of, I think, what we've seen. 
We end up investing all of our hopes and our expectations. We invest those which are simply too big and too great even for the best governments to bear. Government can't save us and we shouldn't expect it to, but it should protect us. That God expects it to do. Friends, I think those are just four things we must know. Let's turn now and think about four things we ought to do. Four things we must do. Four applications from these truths, if you will. One, pray. I'm just, I'll give you the four just so you know. We're going to say it's going to be pray, pause, pursue, and proclaim. Just so you got it in your head. Pray, pause, pursue, proclaim. First, pray. Pray. You know, in the wake of violence, many today mock the notion that prayer changes things. So, you know, in the last year, the, the hashtag thoughts and prayers That hashtag has become a kind of social media parody. But friends, prayer changes things. It simply does. Israel prayed and God delivered her from her Egyptian oppressors. Moses prayed and God parted the seas and brought water out of a rock. Hannah prayed as we've been in 1 Samuel and God provided her with a son. The apostles pray and what happens? The dead are saved, the imprisoned are set free, and the church marches gloriously to glory. That's what we see when God's people pray. Prayer changes things. Which is why in moments like this we ought to cry out to God. We want to pray for reconciliation. We want to pray for change. We want to pray for the end to abusive authority, for the end to the pernicious belief that the color of one's skin necessarily makes them more dangerous or more harmful or three-fifths of a person. And as we pray, we're given a language to give voice to our grief. God has given us that language we desperately need. It's that language of lament, right? It's what Wes did so wonderfully just a few minutes ago, that that language of lament. You know, laments are prayers in pain that lead to trust. It's when we vocalize our grief and we bring our fears and our complaints to God. We don't complain about him, right? We complain to him. To cry is human. We all do that. But to lament, that's what's deeply Christian, Lamenting, it communicates that we care. Lamenting reminds all of us that we live in a moral universe that exists and that there is such a thing as evil and it is wrong and that God can do something about it. It allows us the opportunity to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And it points victims of injustice to the foot of the cross and to the one who became a victim of injustice on our behalf, right? Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. So friends, we ought to lament. We ought to lament those who die unjustly under the knee of police brutality. We ought to lament those who are chased down and gunned down simply because they look suspicious or because they jog fast. We ought to lament how a few corrupt and abusive police officers have made it so difficult for all police officers. We ought to lament how spouses of those officers fear for their lives when they leave the house 
in much the same way that many minorities feel for their own lives when they leave their home. And we ought to lament the ugly and the heinous sin of racism that has poisoned our own nation since its very founding. You know, and that last truth, it's an inconvenient truth. Like, that is something as Americans we don't like to confront, we don't like to deal with. We want to pretend that such events didn't happen within our beloved country. But friends, we live in a nation where those who were fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image have been oppressed by other image bearers. The very diversity that God wondrously wove into his plan of creation has been maliciously twisted by sin and hijacked as a reason for hatred. Friends, God abhors that evil unequivocally, right, wholesale, and it should be lamented. And the fact that such hatred was often perpetuated by churches that bore God's name, that ought to be especially lamented. Right now, I fear part of what's happening is we're reaping the bitter fruit of our own tortured past. And yet as we cry out, as we pray, we pray as Christians. We pray with the certain truth and comfort that every single injustice in this life is delayed justice. Every injustice is delayed justice because all oppression has an expiration date. You know, one month ago we looked at Psalm 94 and there we saw what? That our God is a God of vengeance. That he will rise up with a kind of holy fury and he will judge the earth in its iniquity. It might be good to go back to listen to that sermon where we're consoled that this God that we worship, this God who created all, that he hears, that he cares, that he knows that he delivers, that he comforts, and that he avenges. That's how we just walk through Psalm 94. Friends, that's the God we pray to. That's the God with great confidence we pray to, knowing that he has the power and the capacity and the heart to do something. Friends, if we want to see justice, we ought to do more than just pray, but we can never do less than pray. We must pray, but second, pause. I think second exhortation is to pause. You know, the Bible calls us to what? We know James 1.19, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Proverbs 16.32, reading from the, uh, from the CSB, teaches us that patience is better than power and controlling one's emotions than capturing a city. You know, our social media-saturated world, pausing, exercising patience in times like this, it's a really hard thing to do. And in the face of injustice, it's an especially hard thing to do, I think in part because when faced with injustice, we instinctively, as image bearers, we see something as wrong. We see the iniquity of it, the injury of it, and we naturally want to respond to it, to immediately cry out against the injustice. That's part of what means to be made in God's image. And I think one of the challenges in today's society, sort of given the various news outlets, whether it's cable news or the big three, right, they, they increasingly seem to report less news. 
It seems they more editorialize than report. And often in a rush to be first, the integrity of the news is sacrificed along the way. So, you know, the classic case is that case of Nicholas Sandman of of Covington Catholic High School, 16-year-old, and his confrontation with that Native American, elderly Native American man, Nathan Phillips. Many of you remember that image from, from last year. It was claimed that this teen was taunting, even jeering at Phillips. He was chanting, apparently, things like, build the wall, and these images of, of a smiling, even smug Sandman before this stoic. You know, Phillips went viral, and CNN and Washington Post and others called the teen menacing, said he acted with racist disrespect, and Sandman was vilified all over the world. Problem is, it turns out that story, that narrative was all wrong. It was all wrong. The elderly Native American actually approached the teen, but not to confront the teen, but because there was actually a third group of people that was taunting the Catholic high school students, and apparently Phillips approached this elderly Native American man beating his drum in order to defuse the situation. But of course, that's not the message we heard for days. And just this year, CNN had to settle a $275 million lawsuit out of court, recognizing the slander and the defamation, and other suits ensue, okay? Point being, friends, we've got to be cautious. We need to be discerning with our news. We need to be careful and not rush to judgments, especially when that news comes through your social media feed. Friends, you can't treat whatever comes through your Facebook feed like credible news. I hope that's not a shock to you, but just know you can't do it. You can't do that. As Christians, we care supremely about truth because our God is a God of truth. So we don't want to simply react. As Christians, we want to respond. Right? We want to respond. We want to respond thoughtfully, carefully, lovingly, and the danger in such times is that we lash out, right? We don't listen. We don't pause, but we lash out. We rush to judgments. But friends, we've got to pause for a second reason because our natural inclination often is either to lash out or our natural inclination is to tune out. We tend to go one of the two extremes. We lash out or we tune out. We tune out those voices we simply don't like. Tune out those voices that confront us with inconvenient truths. We have this warped inclination to distance ourselves from those who are different than us. To lift ourselves up and to press others down. It's been said that privilege is when you think something is not a problem because you aren't personally affected. It's been said privilege is when you think something is not a problem because you aren't personally affected. Friend, is it possible that there are more systematic injustices in society even if that hasn't been part of your own personal experience? Be careful not to universalize your own experience Be willing to challenge some of your sacred assumptions. Don't become trapped in your own echo chamber. Proverbs 12, 15 reminds us 
that the fool's way is always right in his own eyes. But whoever listens to counsel is wise. Friends, listen to the stories of others. Evaluate whether or not their experience of growing up in this country is anything like your experience of growing up in this country. You know, so when I turned 16, my parents didn't sit me down and they didn't explain to me what neighborhoods I could drive in and what neighborhoods I couldn't drive in. My parents didn't tell me that I couldn't take the car out after 8 p.m. They didn't tell me what I would have to do with my hands and what I needed to say if I was ever pulled over by an officer. They didn't tell me when I left the house that I couldn't wear a hoodie. I mean, goodness, I grew up in Santa Cruz, California. The hoodie to Santa Cruz is like Chaco's in Northwest Arkansas. Right? It's just ubiquitous. I never had to have those conversations. That wasn't the America I grew up in. And yet, that was the America that many of my African-American brothers and sisters grew up in when I lived in D.C. That was their experience. Now, some will conclude from the death of George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey and others in a recent past, and they will say, America has a race problem. And we might be tempted to dismiss it and say, ah, no, but I'm not racist. Or I haven't experienced it. I don't see it. Or they'll look at various income and educational disparities and say, America suffers from systematic and systemic racial injustice. And we might be tempted to say, well, not in my company, not my school, not my place of employment, not in my community, not in my church. And then someone will claim, well, yeah, that's because of your white privilege. And then all of a sudden, the conversation has been militarized, sides are hardened against one another, and any meaningful conversation, I fear, comes at that point to a grinding halt. Now, I'm not here to answer all those questions again, to adjudicate those things. The truth is often far too nuanced for sound bites like that. But for those of you who are offended by those kinds of accusations, by those who would say America has race problems or there is systemic or systematic racial injustice, if you find those statements offensive, I think particularly if you're white, which is the vast majority of us, is it possible the world you live in is quite different from the world that many African Americans inhabit? Is it possible that your experience isn't the universal experience of all? Is it possible that the inability of you to recognize those differences is actually part of what frustrates your African-American brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, consider what New York University law professor Brian Stevenson told a reporter this week. He told a reporter, why are, why are African-Americans protesting? And he said, you know, it's not just anger over what happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Aubrey. It's anger about continuing to live in a world where there is this presumption of dangerousness and guilt wherever you go. I'm 60 years old. I've been practicing law for 35 years. I have a lot of honorary degrees. I went to Harvard. And I still go places where I am presumed dangerous. I have been told to leave courtrooms because the presumption was that I was the defendant. I couldn't be the lawyer. I've been pulled out of my car by police who pointed a gun on me. 
And I can just tell you that when you have to navigate this presumption of guilt day in and day out, and when the burden is on you to make people around you see you as fully human and equal, you get exhausted. He could have said you get killed. Now, I'm not saying if you're white that you should feel guilty or personally responsible or that it's your fault. I am saying stories like that should grieve you. They should grieve you. And you should not only pray for a world, but work toward a world where such ethnic prejudice would be no more. Friends, that brings me to application three. We should pray, we should pause, we should thirdly pursue. We should pursue. I hope you heard those words exhausted by Brian Stevenson, exhausted. Because in conversations with other African Americans, that's a word I'm increasingly hearing, exhausted. They're growing weary of talking, weary of explaining, of seeking to tell again for the upteenth time what it's like to be black in America, what it's like to be black in overwhelmingly white churches. Like any relationship, part of how we demonstrate love is to pursue. It's not simply to sit back and say, talk to me. Explain it again, and then walk away only for another tragedy to strike, and say, wait, sit back down and explain that to me again. Friends, that's exhausting. Anyone in marriage knows that is not an effective communication strategy. You know, if you sit there with your wife, and sadly I can speak from experience, say, tell me that again. And then weeks later, you're like, yeah, 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 that thing happened, tell me that again. You look like, no, I've told you enough, like, you've actually got to figure this out. We love others by spending time learning, reflecting, studying. Again, it's how we demonstrate love. So many of us live a great distance from the kind of oppression that many African Americans face. Learning, pursuing, understanding, that's how we lovingly seek to close some of that distance. So learn something about our racial history other than the Civil War. You know, the more you learn, I think the more compassionate, the more sympathetic, and the more discerning you'll become. Was America founded on gross racial injustice such that slavery and the notion that African Americans are but two-thirds of a person, is that part of our national history? Tragically, yes. And I think one of the great hypocrisies of our history is that a history that was a a history that apparently included a nation that birthed liberty, birthed that liberty in the cauldron of slavery. Did the Dred Scott decision further codify that injustice, ruling that African Americans were slaves, not free, not even properly citizens, but ruled they were property? That is the Dred Scott decision, that is our history. Did the passing of the 13th and 14th Amendments put an end post-Civil War to that racial injustice? Tragically, no. What have we seen? Voter suppression, intimidation, lynchings, all too commonplace. For every Emmett Till, how many scores of others did we never hear about? Did Jim Crow laws of the past century perpetuate much of that racial injustice? Unquestionably, yes. You know, thinking back to Psalm 94, what's one of the things that marked the wicked? That they framed injustice by statute. Friend, that can be said of our own country. 
even in our own time frame. Federal housing policy in many of our lifetimes, our own federal housing policy permitted subsidized housing construction on the basis that those homes could not be sold to African Americans. Subsidized housing, so long as it's not sold, put to a particular ethnic class of people. Friends, that is our own perverse legacy, right? We have to just recognize it. Part of what we have to do is confront that. And do such legacies affect, did they affect where many African Americans could afford to live? And therefore, did it come to affect the tax revenue or the lack thereof in those communities? And what would happen in the local school systems and what would happen with adequate health care and so on? Of course, those policies affected such things. And did that negatively affect the outcomes and, and the opportunities afforded to many African Americans? No doubt it affects those outcomes. Is race, in fact, the, de- the determining factor behind whether or not one receives the death penalty? Sadly, yes. I don't think the death penalty itself Right? That's not prejudiced, but the application of it, sadly, tragically, often is. Friends, understanding more of that history will help you appreciate the season we're in, and it will help you appreciate the grief and the heat and the kind of anger you sometimes hear. Friends, as part of that pursuit, just start simply, just watch a movie. Just watch Just Mercy. Read the book. A book that we read as part of our pastoral internship was The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Friends, it is short. Highly commend it to you. It is short. It is an immensely powerful and haunting firsthand account of what it, was, what it looked like, what it was like to live under slavery. And it's a book that doesn't point the finger, but it brings you into the plight. It's not about grief. Well, I should say it's about grief. It's not about guilt. It is about grief. It is about the grief of slavery. Consider The Warmth of Other Sons by the Pulitzer Prize winning author Isabel Wilkerson. Or his Testimonies, My Heritage, which is just a collection of writings by African American Christian women talking about what it's like to be a woman of color in today's world. Friends, ignorance is never a virtue. Ignorance is never a virtue. We can't be experts on everything. You're not being asked to be. You can't be an expert on everything. But love would call you to know something. So pursue love by learning and by discerning some of the key differences between that world you inhabit and the world many others do. Fourth, proclaim. Lastly, proclaim. So pray, pause, pursue, and proclaim. There is one solution, right, to racism, to ethnic prejudice. And you're not going to hear it on primetime news. You're not going to hear it talked about within the nation's top newspapers. Racism, it's about hatred. It's about fear, the hatred and fear that we all store up in our own hearts. And society's solutions can partially fix behavior, but they can't fix the heart. So Christians can differ, differ about the efficacy and about the utility of protests and, and even reparations payments. You can have that conversation. But if hearts don't change, even our best, most well-intentioned efforts won't bring any of the lasting change we all want. People need to hear 
that the word of God alone is the power unto salvation. People need to hear that the word of God alone rescues rebels and redeems wretches. I mean, wasn't it wonderful that we sang Amazing Grace? Newton himself, a slave trader, saved by the grace of God. Friends, that's what the gospel does. That's what it does. And people need to hear that true and lasting peace, eternal peace, is found only in the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. A life of truly good works is only possible after we receive such grace, not before it. The New Testament church, you know, was beset with injustices, Roman persecution, Jewish oppression. You see it as you read through the book of Acts. It's very clear. Christians had absolutely no legal standing. Paul had some as a Roman citizen, but Christians, by and large, did not. And yet they never permitted the pursuit of justice to eclipse the preaching of the gospel that justifies sinners. Neither must we. We can't fall prey to the either-or mentality, right? It's, it can't be either good works or the gospel. It's not either or, it is both and. It is the gospel and good works. Our convictions and our passions about what to do in the present moment, friends, they will be strong, but as passionately as we hold to those convictions, may that passion never eclipse our passion for the gospel. Right now, America finds itself facing authoritarian nationalism that seems to fear plurality and diversity on the one hand. You've got that side, a kind of authoritarian nationalism that fears diversity and plurality. And on the other hand, you have this increasingly illiberal liberalism that compels submission to identity politics. Those are our present political choices. Friends, the message of the gospel offers so much more than that. So much more than that. So proclaim that gospel with your lips and live out that gospel with your lives. At the end of the day, our hope, as we said, it's not in government. It is in the gospel. Governments, they can partially restrain evil. They can't change the heart. They can punish wrong, but it's only the Lord and the gospel who can deliver us from all wrong. Friends, protest if you want. Proclaim you must, though. You know, as the images of the demonstrations, as the police and riot gear, as those continue to flood our screens, as we grieve over injustice, friend, I hope that you pray. I hope that you pause. I really hope you do pursue. You take that active step. And I hope as well you proclaim. And as we do so, we have to remember that God, God visited us once for the evils and the injustices of our world. He sent us Jesus Christ, and as Colton was talking about in the ABF this morning, this Jesus Christ is certainly coming back, not only to put an end to all the evils in here, but put an end finally to every evil and every injustice. Friend, is that your hope in these days? Is that what you're anchoring yourself in, in that truth? Let's pray.